think back to the fact that my dad is American and he's a black American from Queens and diabetes, hypertension surround our black identity and how much of that is correlated with years upon years upon years upon years upon years of starvation. And uh, we as individuals were sometimes I think shamed into thinking like it's not because we, we don't take care of our weight, we don't take care of our hearts. These things may have been put upon us for iterations of centuries. Hey y'all, you're listening to Risky Behavior, where no subject is off limits. Kick back, tune in, and enjoy a beverage with us as we explore controversial topics and answer scientific questions. Ranging from health and nutrition, to behavioral risks and climate change. I'm Dr. Taylor Wallace. And I'm Dr. Shatha Chakraborty. Together we'll loosen lips and spill tea with special guests you will not want to miss. Dr. Bianca Jones-Marlin is an incoming assistant professor of psychology and neuroscience at Columbia University's Zuckerman Institute, where she investigates transgenerational epigenetic inheritance, or how traumatic experiences in parents affect the brain structure of their offspring. Her research has focused on the vital bond between parent and child, and she studied the use of neurochemicals, such as the love drug, oxytocin, as a treatment to strengthen fragile and broken parent-child relationships. Bianca's research has been featured in the Los Angeles Times, The Guardian, Scientific American, and Discover Magazine's 100 Top Stories of 2015. You're in for such a treat. Bianca is the epitome of female rock star and scientist. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Welcome, Bianca. I just want to say congratulations. You are a new mom to your second child. That's incredible. So in addition to all of the science that you do, you also have this new venture in your life. And, you know, we have so much in common, which is why I was so excited also to yeah. interview you for our, for our podcast. We're both women of color. We're both scientists. We're both from New York. I actually had a at Columbia University too. But the one thing I'm not <laughs> is a mom. I've frozen my eggs. That's as close as I've gotten. <laughs> oh, that's something. But I really just want to kick Long this off with. Care. Yeah. What I really want to kick this off with is, you know, what are you, you're an expert in this and you have somehow decided that the benefits of being a mom outweigh the risks. So what do you tell somebody like me who's like terrified of the prospects? Ooh, ooh. you're starting off with the deep questions right off the bat. So is she going to um, have really wet kids? <laughs> It depends on who the father is. <laughs> true, true statement. What I will say is that nature has us prepared to be parents. How? I think it's because of the love drug oxytocin. Why do I say that? Because it's not always clear when you look at the data that the risk outweigh the benefit. Um, children are, um, oh gosh, my children are going to listen to this one day, right? Uh, <laughs> I mean, they, they are a beautiful, growing, brilliant parasite for a solid 18 years. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, you know, change your, your, your epigenetics and change your body in ways that you did not sign up for. And then, um, change your pocket in a similar way. And yet somehow we still continue to have someone. I'm on kid number two, right? And number one still didn't like start giving me back the benefits that they should because she's only three years old. 
Oh, wow. Uh, but why? Why do we continue to, to, uh, to procreate? Why do we continue to take care of our offspring? And I do think it's because bi biology knows that's important. So our bodies are set up to say, even though this doesn't seem rewarding based on paper, something about this is rewarding. Something right. about feeding this child is rewarding. Um, I'm still breastfeeding now, which is why I'm, I'm drinking my Guinness to make sure my milk stays up. Um, that, that's not that's not scientific. That's an old wives' tale that I'm signing <laughs> on to. I don't. <laughs> I have to subtract from Bianca and Dr. Marlin in that case. Uh, but but there's something rewarding about rearing a child. Even when I say rearing a child, it sounds so scientific, right? But we're still doing it. We're still here doing it, and civilizations have continued on this far, considering like the cost benefit analysis isn't always in the positive when you look at the data. Well, and you know, you were so interesting, you know, to come to the show for me, because as a nutrition scientist, I actually have a large uh, clinical study in Guatemala of 1200 malnourished infants, and we're looking at cognitive development right now. And I actually do a lot of work on the choline side, which is like oxytocin regulated by estrogen, at least the body's production of it. It upregulates during pregnancy. Um, and I actually had no clue that, that uh, oxytocin had uh, a link to vitamin C and was partially regulated by vitamin C. So that was something I learned just in um, researching before you came on. That's amazing. I actually, I, I had not come across that data, but it's just like it further solidifies how important it is that we give credit where credit's due to biology. Like it, we're, we're set up for this. Right. I, get, I gotta ask, because one of my good friends recently adopted a child um, to a gay couple, you know, recently adopted a little girl, and now they're going back for round two about a year and a half later. And it's really exciting, but I, I'm interested in your take on, you know, this cuddle hormone, this oxytocin, the love hormone. Like, what is the message for foster parents out there? I have to say that I think my motivation surrounding studying oxytocin has to do exactly with this question, especially when it comes to parental behavior. And I look at both maternal and paternal behavior, so both moms and dads. And the beauty of it is that oxytocin, yes, it's released during breastfeeding, it's released during uterine contractions, um, so birth, birthing. It's also released during orgasms, through soft touch, through high con eye contact. But we don't have to give birth to an actual child to look a child in the eyes and have oxytocin release in both them and in ourselves. And there's something beautiful about that, that we can learn to unlock something so innate, like loving and caring. And that's exactly what I think is happening when it comes to um, uh, adoption. Now, I've never adopted a child of my own, although my husband and I, um, we have two biological kids. And for the first time, we had a foster daughter. And it was interesting to see, she's no longer with us now. And I think both facets of that, having someone come into your life as a small child and realizing how quickly you fall in love with them. It's different than my nieces and nephews. It's also different than my children. It's an, an act of falling in love with them. And that, once again, I'm separating Bianca from Dr. Merlin because I don't know how to describe that scientifically, but I felt like I'm going to fall in love with this child and I did. And the heartbreak of them leaving, they have like neuro, neurological like correlates, but we also, we know the feeling, we know it's real. And I can't help but separate, like, but not separate oxytocin from those feelings that we had in that process. And so congratulations to your friends. That's, that's a big move. So now I have to ask, like, because Shetha and I have talked a lot about this, um, because we're in our mid-30s now, and I think both of us are kind of <laughs> like, about to tell the did you guys talk about it? I know, I don't, am I, am I the person you guys are talking like... <laughs> Yeah, no. you know, she's frozen her eggs, and, you know, I've kind of always thought I wanted kids. It's ramped up a lot lately. 
And I was in Guatemala with my clinical study and I was just had some extra time was walking through one of the local markets and this little boy, he must've been three years old, missing his two front teeth, looked up at me and was like, hola gringo. And I was just like, oh my God, I'm in love with you. Like you're like everything. Is there an age correlate to that? Like, is this just because like I'm old now and like now, you know, we're kind of like, okay, we're at the age where we should probably have kids. Does it like affect us more? I am not pregnant and Taylor is not the father. Just <laughs> any boomer mills that might be starting. I'm still on the Ola Gringo. Like, I'm still like, I'm still going like, to, I, 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 I hang out with this little kid too. It's a key question. We know that oxytocin is released um, with things that we consider quote unquote cute, right? Like, I kind of feel bad calling a little human cute, even though they are precious. But like, dogs have an ability to release oxytocin in us that has become evolutionarily like embedded in them. The puppy dog eyes, that's an adaptation that wolves don't have, right. that dogs have, have learned, and then therefore it's become like part of their, of their, um, of their MO, where like they'll give you the sad puppy dog eyes and it releases oxytocin in us, which makes us love them. Because once again, when you think about, I'm gonna offend people, you think about the relationship with like a human and a dog outside of like, you taking care of them, that's all it is. It's not, they're not like yeah. making you money. They're not, you know, right. <laughs> putting food on the table or anything. They're just, it's just their presence. And you can't get joy. that from dogs and not cats, right? As much? Uh, well, so I'm, I'm a cat lady. Oh, I'm not a cat lady. I take that back. I just have a cat. I'm not a cat lady. Um, I definitely have a cat and my cat stank. My cat is like, could care less about you. So I don't know what that says about me as a person that I'm more into cats who like reject me as opposed to dogs who, who want me. But yeah, well, we have all the stereotypes because cat ladies also are meant to not have children necessarily. Whereas not only do you have your own kids, you fostered a daughter and you're talking about fostering more children in the future. So you are breaking down these stereotypes. Thank you. Right. She's got so much oxytocin. She just doesn't <laughs> have to have. A I could even have a cat. That's how much oxytocin I have. <laughs> that are like just stimulating it all the time right <laughs> but definitely in dogs maybe because cats are a little bit more like a self-sufficient well you know princess my dog you know she oh. is you know six now and she just she's very mischievous and i mean she can give me those eyes she just like you know <laughs> i want a treat and i'm just like Ugh. well it is an evolutionary <laughs> trait for sure i've heard this before yeah. we have close friends who are neuroscientists we're so excited that you are now mm -hmm. part of our science conglomerate. I love it. So tell us a little bit more about your research, your original research and where you are going with your research, because I listened to some previous interviews you've done. I'm fascinated by your study in epigenetics, genetics, and transgenerational epigenetics. So it's not just our parents and we're allowed to curse on the show, but since you're, you just said your kids are going to hear it eventually, I'm going to just say our parents could mess us up, but you're saying our grandparents could mess us up. It goes even further. Let's get Ooh. into this. <laughs> I really, yes, I guess I just study what I'm interested in and like make sure I, I have an optimal life, et cetera. But um, so I'm looking at, yes, it's called transgenerational epigenetic inheritance of stress or trauma. Transgenerational meaning going along the, the generations. Epigenetic means around the genome. So your genome itself won't change. If uh, our genome, our genetics will stay the same from our parents to us, we'll inherit those. But not all of our genes are read at the same time. For example, all of our genes are the same in our eyes and our liver, but we don't have eyes going in our liver because certain things are read and certain things are not read to say become a liver cell, become an eye cell. And so epigenetic markers are what regulate those. 
Similarly, um, one that's commonly used is like smoking. Smoking can change epigenetic markers in some people, not all people, um, that could lead to overgrowth of cells. Once again, in some people, not all. So there's so many questions still surrounding what epigenetic markers regulate. And what we're looking at is how epigenetic markers can change based on a stress or a trauma. So it changes the individual. I'm looking at um, smell and the way the brain works in re reference to smell and trauma. So a traumatizing experiment, experience I said experiment, because like thinking of, of odor, traumatizing experience paired with an odor like almond or spearmint and how that plays a role in changing the brain and then how your kids would respond to spearmint or almond in the future and your grandkids. And what's really cool is we've shown that the brain changes based on a traumatic experience, which within itself is kind of crazy. Yeah. Like you have an experience and all of a sudden cells in your brain, there, there are different numbers of cells in your brain based on the experience. And then somehow sperm and egg remember this experience. And that's brought down to the second generation and even the third. Wow. So I'm really asking like, how, how does that happen? And how is it, it's evolutionary sound sometimes, but not all the time. You know, I had a traumatic 2020 and I just thought it was all the monster brain. Maybe I just lost a bunch of brain cells. Like, you know, really have. Like, you know, I, I am actually looking at this in the same way with nutrition. I mean, we're looking at giving these kids in the first thousand days you know, one egg a day as complimentary feeding, you know, because of the choline in the eggs and all the methyl donation and how that affects epigenetics. So it's very, very much the same. And it makes me wonder how much like, because when you're, you know, in a malnourished population, there's obviously a high stress level. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really, really interesting to intersect between what you're doing and what I'm doing. Because if you look at like choline, it decreases the effects of cortisol you know, in the, the baby while a woman's pregnant, you know, again, plays right into epigenetics and cognitive development, or at least in my opinion. Listen, scientists in the room, as a social <laughs> scientist, I need us to backtrack for two seconds and just define epigenetics, please. Oh, I'm sorry. I started <laughs> generational. I didn't finish epigenetics. Oh, man, I, in my mind, I was like, oh, I'm getting to the epigenetics. And I started to dive in. So I'm going to revisit that. Time. That's something I'll, I'll keep it in the, um, in the docket. Uh, epigenetics. Epigenetics means around the genome. That's where I was going. Guys, let me lose my train of thought. There's so much fun to speak to. So um, I just said your genetics don't change, but markers around your genes change. And that will allow our genes to say like, I'm on or I'm off. So the epigenetic really just means above the gene. So if a gene is read like, a, like um, I think these are words I can see the sentence, but there are markers that will sometimes cover that. So I can't read the sentence. So you're like, you don't, you don't know what my ring looks like because you yeah. can't read it. That's a great analogy. I hope our audience is also watching this on YouTube as, as well as listening to it because she just showed this gorgeous house ring. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna, so majority of the work done in epigenetics in humans, Taylor actually surrounds nutrition. Mm -hmm. So a lot of this work comes from the Dutch hunger winter, which happened after World War II, in which the Netherlands were starved. Um, people in the Netherlands were starved for about nine months after World War II. And what we noticed, um, scientists noticed, were that the kids and the grandkids of those that survived that starvation suffered from metabolic issues as if they were still living in a part in a impoverished and food poor area. So they suffered from diabetes, hypertension, which is high blood pressure, and even schizophrenia. Whereas those who weren't uh, starved during that time, their kids and their grandkids did not. And so this is the, really one of the biggest studies when it comes to humans and epigenetic markers and transgenerational epigenetics because the body was preparing for those kids to be born in a place that didn't have food. And the issue only comes is when the environment changes, 
the kids did have food and therefore diabetes and hypertension were the end goal. Right, right. And I, I really correlated. same thing in countries like Guatemala, where you have such a high rate of cognitive impairment in the kids, okay, well. not just the child and the child's nutrition. It was the maternal nutrition. It was, you know, the grandmother's nutrition. It was, you know, the, both parents. I mean, we know at least with alcohol that father's nutrition matters, at least in regard to alcohol. But, you know, those certain B vitamins, folate, choline, the methyl donors, yeah. what we call them, betaine, really, really matter when it comes to epigenetics. And, you know, like you said, it's a, it's a really, it's a really interconnected world. And it's great to have you on the show. This is just, <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> so you're giving us a lot of interesting historical data. I'd love to hear how this then, what, how does this all relate to the current situations that you're researching and what is pristine data? Ooh. I know that we want to touch on this and I believe that it's related to historical information as it relates to like our current present situation. Is that kind of like a fair general lead way into what this is? Oh, you mean the work that I'm, that I'm planning, like I'm doing now, I'm planning to do in the future, how it relates to like. Yeah. Let's talk about what pristine data is. This is the first time I'm hearing that term. I mean, pristine data is what we all aspire to, to have. And we really can't get pristine data because the environment's always changing. We want to just make sure that we as scientists get replicable data. So we're able to go and do an experiment, perturb a few things, and the, the data still hold up. Because if we're worrying about this animal worked well on this day of October 22nd when the weather was 42 degrees Celsius, it's never going to work like that the same way. We want to see something that's continual over time. And the cool part about our experiments are that they're so continuable over time, like over generations. Right. And that's both beautiful and terrifying. Um, and it's terrifying because I think of, we're talking about the current time of 2020, for those listening in the future, it's, it's 2020, October 22nd, so right before the election. It's been um, a crazy year for a majority of Americans and humans on this earth. And I think back to my lineages, um, my mother's from South America, a country called Guyana, which although has one of the highest literacy rates in the world, also has the number two highest suicide rate in the world. Really? Um, yes, unfortunately. And it's also, um, it's, it's an extremely impoverished country. I think back to the fact that my dad is American and he's a black American from Queens and diabetes, hypertension surround our black identity. Right. And how much of that is correlated with years upon years upon years upon years upon years of starvation. Right. And uh, we as individuals were sometimes, I think, shamed into thinking like it's not because we, we don't take care of our weight, we don't take care of our hearts. These things may have been put upon us for iterations of centuries. So no matter how much you're doing the opposite, these things have now become ingrained. It was something that was learned for survival that has now become innate in our being. Um, and so I really do think not just, I think about the past, about 1820, 1720, and 1620. I think about the 70s, uh, the 60s when my, when my parents came over, my mom came over to America. I think about 2020 now, my two kids, and how much of what stresses that they're experiencing and that I experience can live on in them, but also resilience. You, you know, know, we can't just beat ourselves up with that. We have to think about the resilience component as well. You know, my dad is like this huge stress ball and I have tried all my life not to be that way. And she'll tell you like before the show, I was, you know, kind of freaking out about oh. you know, things that are happening in life. That's usually my Friday or Thursday gig is like, you know, is to be all stressed out at the end of the week. And then 
I get into the weekend with my friends and I'm the benefits of red wine. Yeah, (laughs) it really is. You know, I I think in some point uh, hereditary in that sense. And it's it's, as much as it is hereditary, I wonder how much we could learn to cope and how much of that is going to be passed on. Yeah. And these are the questions we really don't have the answers to. Biology wants us to survive. So it means if you're going to be have diabetes, hypertension, or be obese, but if there's no food, you're going to survive, I'm going to opt with that. And well, I think that's the world that we're living in most of the time. So let's transition into our current situation with COVID-19. I have a couple of friends who have been pregnant and had kids during COVID-19. They're Early babies. It's got to be a stressful time. I mean, I have a, one of my best friends has a two-year-old and mm-hmm. she hasn't been out of the house in almost a year. I mean, she's very scared of contracting the virus and giving it to her young child and, you know, all the repercussions that potentially happen. So, you know, what do you say to parents out there in this kind of stressful environment? What do I say to parents during this stressful environment? It, it's hard because I also know I'm speaking from a place in which I have parents who live close who are able to um, uh, take care of my daughter while I was in the hospital at the height of COVID given birth. I had a partner, my husband is um, a a psychiatrist and neuroscientist, um, but during the time of COVID, he was in uh, serving in medicine, so serving in the hospital. So as stressful as it was to be for six weeks, me being pretty much by myself, also I had to be packing and moving, very much pregnant. I got induced early and a lot of things came into play. Um, I was thankful, and my husband wasn't there because he was working in the hospital and we were being separated because of COVID. I was thankful enough to have, to give birth in a hospital that like, you know, took care of me, that we knew the doctor. And so it's, it's really hard for me to say like, oh, you know, it's been so horrible or it's been so great. It really has been that fluctuation and yet we're still here. And I think that's the best thing that I could say that we can't write off the, like I said before, the resilience component. Yeah. We are resilient people and by we, I mean humans. We have the ability to be resilient. Do you think that we're going to see repercussions from this, like with kids, like COVID babies? I have, I'm more concerned of the stressors that the parents are going through than the kids. Kids adapt. Um, we see it in all different aspects of our life. And just, just watching kids, actually observing kids, like making your own experiment, watch your kids. They will adapt to their surroundings for their survival. And they aren't set in their ways yet. They don't know the peak and the top yet. So they will run, they'll roll with the punches which is terrifying when they're subjected to things like abuse, to things like assault, where they learn to accept it as is, and they don't always speak up, right? Because they're, they're rolling to punches for their survival. But when it comes to something like COVID, I think screen time will be okay. <laughs> so, okay, we know kids are resilient for sure. Like I'm terrified when I'm holding a baby and I think I'm gonna break him or her, but ultimately everyone is like, relax, you're actually way more than this child is, right? So, all of that, I know to be true, but still it's our gut instinct to want to protect these children. So what is the advice that you have for those of us who really are terrified and we want to, at the same time, we want to minimize any impact, negative impact or trauma, but at the, we, at the same time, we want to maximize our oxytocin. Should we just all take oxytocin supplements? Is that- No, a- don't do that. I will tell you why not to do that. So you got, you got me like on the tip of my chair. <laughs> So um, when oxytocin is released from the body, and, uh, twofold, when oxytocin is released from the body, for example, my work has shown that oxytocin changes the way a mother will hear the sound of a baby crying. It'll change the behavior surrounding that. When I present my work, I always have moms come up and say, I was shopping in the shopping mall and I heard another baby crying. 
and started lactating. It wasn't even my kid. That's how strong this is. I'm gonna ask you about that. <laughs> you can hear another baby crying and elicit response in you. And as well as like there are people who haven't had children like that child needs to shut up. And that's exactly what my mice do. Virgins will go and they'll like say, I'm actually going to ignore you until you get cold and like die. Virgin mice, is mice get cold and probably like die. Or you're so annoying, I'm going to eat you. I will cannibalize you to stop this sound. Whereas mothers will pick them up and take care of them. And what my research showed is that I can treat an, uh, a virgin with oxytocin just in their hearing center, just in their communicative hearing center, the left side, and it changes the behavior. So treating the hearing centers changes the behavior. So we don't want to just like be popping oxytocin or dropping off the drink because you could be creating a connection with someone you should not be creating a connection with. Yeah. So the reason why it's important to have that pairing is because the Oxytocin is flooding the body when the uterine contracts, breastfeeding milk let them. And the first cue of the mouse here is the sound of the baby crying. That's the pairing. And we could also, I did the experiment, which is called the dubstep experiment. It's pretty cool, where we played like, at the time it was dubstep. This is like, you know, 2000. <laughs> wow, so, aged all of us. <laughs> it is what it is, you know? We know exactly what you're talking about. No, not. So, you know, like two things I've learned today is one, don't take oxytocin because it's like, you know, I had a friend that like um, had testicular cancer and took, you know, was prescribed a bunch of testosterone and he was all crazy too. So <laughs> I, I'm glad we're, we're good with, we're not taking hormones that are over the counter on <laughs> or anything like that. And two, that, you know, pretty much all my problems are my parents' fault. I mean, <laughs> it's, it was- And grandparents. Taylor's parents. And it was way back. There you go. <laughs> but they can blame their parents and they can blame their parents, so we're good. I like yeah, it. It's this perpetual go. cycle. So ultimately the goal is to break that cycle of negative outcomes from our genes and we are so looking forward to the continued research that you contribute to this field. And we can't wait for when you tell us what the answer is to best parenting. Cause I know Thank that's you what you're I'm looking for it as well. <laughs> yeah, especially when I start to unfreeze these eggs. Yes, exactly. Let me know when the thawing happens. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Bianca. Thank this you. was awesome. That's a wrap for today. Have ideas for the show? Tweet us at RiskyBehaviorDC, that's all one word. My handle, at ShutTheChalk, that's S-W-E-T-A-C-H-A-K, or Taylor's handle, at Dr. Taylor Wallace, that one spelled as it sounds. You can also send us an email at hello.riskybehavior at gmail.com, or a voice message at 202-713-5182. Shoot us some science or some shade. Thank you for tuning into Risky Behavior. Till next time.